describes acts of extreme violence in graphic detail and may include discussions about demonology and the occult, topics that caused widespread panic during the 1980s. This content may not be suitable for children under the age of 50. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. I'm James. I'm Dan. And so, Dan, why don't you introduce our very special guest we have on today? Absolutely. It is our pleasure to have Ernie Gygax on the show today. Uh, Ernie, of course, worked for TSR during its golden age, rising from a mere shipping clerk to executive vice president of consumer services and VP creative for Dungeons and Dragons Entertainment. And he, of course, has the distinction of having played perhaps in the first ever D&D game. But most importantly, he wishes everyone would go back to first edition AD&D. And that's really why we've invited him on. So, Ernie, thank you for being on the show. You're most very welcome. Let's have yeah, some hello. fun. Let's oh, do it. Great. Can we take you back? I'd like to take you back to August 1967 and something that has become called Gen Con Zero. Now, do you remember it <laughs> at all? Yeah, that was that was at our house, and it was my father having a, a gathering, which was mostly um, mostly teenagers, to my memory, and young men of twenty, maybe thirty years old, or so, from Chicago and Milwaukee areas. Basically, there was um, there was some Fletcher Pratt naval going on in our living room carpet. Uh, there was something being played on the, the table, probably in the, the dining room table, probably with Airfix miniatures at the time. That was what everybody had. They didn't really have the, the lead figurines at that time. The 20, 20 millimeter scale. And uh, your mom wasn't too happy, was she? Absolutely not. Um, they, were me they were taking measuring tapes and, and going over my sister Cindy, I think it was. It could have been Heidi. It was crawling around. Probably Heidi. Uh, those uh, crawling around on the table as they were measuring their shots as the Bismarck was firing at, um, <laughs> I don't know if it was Iowa. I think it was the Iowa fighting the Bismarck, and the Yamato was in there, and it was all like one for one. It wasn't it wasn't nationals or whatever. It was just team by team. <laughs> it was, and, and, and so uh, my understanding is there's probably about a dozen people there, right? Yes, sir. Was that meant to be, was was it just 12 people happened to come over, or was your dad trying to organize some sort of large gathering to do on a regular well, basis? I, I, regular is an interesting word, but he would, had been doing play-by-mail gaming for many years before that um, with postage stamps. And then at that point, dad decided to um, 
just get a bunch of these guys together for, I guess it was just a one day at the time. Um, I remember one was Bill Hoyer, who was this young student out of Milwaukee. And what, what made the big impression to me is that he brought uh, brownies. Remember, I'm a, I'm a child at the time, so, so food and all this is what's important. Uh, <laughs> and we couldn't, we couldn't get snacks and soda and stuff like that. So all these guys brought, like, Pepsi-Cola and all this stuff, and we got to hit off that. So I was like, woo Wait, so I, it was brownies in the 60s? Yeah, brownies, yes. They were not modified. I would much prefer the, the more modern ones now. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so, now, Gen Con 1, apparently, right, is a result of your mom being unhappy with Gen Con 0 being held at, at your house, right? Yeah, she said, never again, Gary Gygax, are we ever having our house filled with strangers around our children? <laughs> Got it. And that, I assume we're talking about the house, right, the now legendary house at, at I see, 330 Center Street, right? Yes, sir. I, I go there um, hopefully once or twice a year now with the Geek Nation Tours doing the uh, classic RPG retreat, Lake Geneva. Yes, and I've heard about those. Those, those sound like, like a blast. I definitely want to talk about that as well. Um, so, so you have uh, you have Gary, you have Gen Con one, and you know uh, we know that you know the story is that your dad meets Dave Arneson, I believe, at Gen Con two in nineteen. Uh, did, did you know about Dave Arneson at all before he Dave comes and introduces you know his role playing aspect to Chainmail, or is that really the first time that that you learned of Dave Arneson? Dad, Dad would talk to me a little bit, but remember, I'm, I'm a young man hanging around in his den as he's doing all this typing, basically trying to distract him to do things with me. So even though I'm getting this information, it's it's going in and out like a sieve because I'm much more interested in, you know, come on, Dad, let's let's do something, you know, get off the typewriter, blah, blah, blah. I'm so glad you're, you're not at Fireman's Fund doing, you know, and all this kind of thing, doing... Because while I was growing up, he was an insurance underwriter using the train going back and forth to Chicago. So. Right, right. So it sounds like we have D&D &D in spite of your efforts to try to distract. <laughs> your, your... Well, he, he brought me into it, of course. He did. And, like, we, we, yeah, and I was going to ask you about, about being brought into We'd already been, he's been teaching me games and, and beating me, but trying to show me always what I'd done wrong. And yeah. at, at some point, the worm turns, and then he's trying to figure out ways to, to be victorious himself. Yeah, yes. And I, and I know you, like so many of us, grew up on Avalon Hill games, right, before role-playing games. As well as Stratego. Right. So do you remember, so, you know, of course, you know, Dave Arneson comes and then shows your dad, you know, the role playing that he's been doing with, with Chainmail, which, of course, uh, uh, your dad had co-authored. Did, uh, do you remember Dave they, Arneson? Oh, go ahead. They'd been exchanging letters back and forth. And my dad had also already started to do things like having a chieftain for the Vikings and uh, a warlord for like the Norman player and things where they'd have, they'd take two hits to kill and they could get two swings in battle. So my dad had already, and he's been incorporating the idea of having individual victory terms that weren't just simply killing your opponents. Because if you were playing the bandits, it was obviously you must survive as the bandit leader. 
a, that's ultimately it. Uh, you, if you die, it's over. That's you know. And then if you can maintain yourself a crew, that's good. So losses are more important to you than for the Viking player. Though so you know, and all these sorts of things. So he started uh, adding elements of of role playing before. Dave put it into a dungeon, and with 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 treasure. And, right. And some way of going up, but it wasn't as it, it hadn't been really worked out. It was more Dave saying, "Oh, look at this! You're you're a little tougher now," kind of thing. You've done well. Yeah, and, and you know, bonus. And there, yeah, and if I recall, there comes a point in time in which uh, Dave shows your father his Blackmore campaign, right? We all played. We all played in it. You all played in it. Okay, so does that was that so was that Dave coming to Lake Geneva saying, "Look, here's my Blackmore campaign, and let's play." And, and you had an opportunity to play in it. Yes, um, I remember that, um, that we were using two six-sided dice to fight a Belrog, and the Belrog was flying towards us. And Dave basically was saying that we were we were garnished. We were off. We were all like hero levels. So we would have been equivalent of fourth levels. Uh, so we were hero types, and he says, "This is like a twelve die monster. You guys are doomed." And but he says it's in the air. So Terry Coons had our plus one arrow, and he pulled it back and shot and rolled boxcars and shot and killed it in the air, and it fell dead. Mm. Um, so, and then there was one other thing that we were using rope instead of mapping. We were using rope to be able to find our way back and just tying all kinds of lengths of rope. And then all of a sudden, we felt some sort of pull at the other end and we were all of us grabbed the rope and then it was starting to pull us away and we let go and we heard a slurping noise as the rope was sucked away and that was the and then we found out later from from Dave that that was a gray pudding so they had the gray pudding rather than being uh just dissolving it he had it actually with like a mouth sucking the rope in and eating it huh. ah an, another pudding well, we yeah, it was, yeah it was yeah that was before black pudding. The original pudding was yeah, was, was gray, apparently. Yeah. Well, well you know, because so now you know back then it wasn't all black and white. It was gray. gray. Shades of gray. gray. Shades of gray. <laughs> so so do you re do you remember your dad's react? Because your dad, as I understand it, your dad then starts. You know, he starts. He runs you guys through a, you and your sister uh, through a game. Rob, Rob Coons actually, even though. Um, that, that doesn't show up. That's one of the few things that John Peterson and I disagree with because John needs absolute verification of anything for it to have happened. Mm. Where in oh. my mind, it was Rob Koontz as well. Yeah, was, no, we, we do not have that standard on Grog Talk <laughs> at all. Right. So this is Here, perfect. Uh, hearsay, random hallucinations, we accept it all. Whatever you say. <laughs> all admissible. That's right. <laughs> Hallucinogenics didn't occur for me until like about... Uh, 1986. So, <laughs> uh, early, that you know of. Yeah, of those brown, early, you're not early, sure. Early onset dementia, whatever. We take it all. We're, it's all good. It's all well, good. That, that's very possible. Yeah. I, I certainly have done things that look reflecting upon. I wish I'd have made a different decision. But <laughs> so, so, okay. So, so if I understand what you're saying, then is because, right? So, so the story that we usually get is that it was your dad running you. And your sister, Elise, and, yes. and you're saying you believe Rob, as you recall it, Rob Kunz was there as well. Yes, and that's where Robilar was born, Tensor, and Alyssa, mm. I believe, was what she called her, her cleric. She was a right. cleric, Rob was a fighter, I was a magic user, Tensor. 
What you know? Okay, so you say she was a cleric, you know, because I think there's been a lot of discussion about where she the cleric. One adventure and said, "This is silly. I'm going to go off and hang around with my girlfriends and chase boys, and this is just not." And what how I'm old about. are you at this time? Because a lot of people, roughly, uh, I, probably seventy-two. So I was like twelve, thirteen. Okay. And your sister is how old? Uh, 10. Ten. Okay. Well, you know, that's what happens when you make somebody play a cleric in their first game. It's just, it's not good. <laughs> so, so, all right, so you play, now, after that, you get, your dad then gets, at some point he gets about 18 or so handwritten pages from Dave, right? And my understanding yeah. is, right, and your dad then starts. As, as, two or three type pages and lots of handwritten crib notes, maybe up to 20 pages total. Of just you know loose, <laughs> right? And and as I I have this image of your dad feverishly typing on his royal typewriter, right, where he's he's starting to type up the rules for what has since become known as as OD and D. Do you have Do you remember him going through that process of typing up original D and D on his typewriter? Well, absolutely. And when we first played the very first adventure, he only had a few pages of his own notes and things were completely loose. And our first characters were done on, um, on, uh, note cards, three by five note cards. And then after I'd had an adventure and, and got and said, wow, this is cool. My dad gave me an old temper insurance, um, book from like 1962. That was a daily calendar. And that's what I started with tensor in. And, and was that gone? Long and gone. I assume that that was the start of Castle Greyhawk. I assume, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, we all had six-sided dice instead of you know eights for clerics and tens for fighters and fours for magic users. That all happened because of our style of play. I was throwing spells and then just jumping into combat as Tensor, and that's why Tensor's transformation came about and many other things. He was trying to delineate and make each rate, not race, each class more unique. And he was always afraid that magic users were getting too powerful, too. I don't necessarily agree, but I think magic users are kind of like um, artillery in the back of a military unit. They can be devastating, but on their own, they're easy to wipe out. Right, and, and, and of course, Tensor, of course, is, right, the letters in your name, That's where, which was a common thing to do back then. Sure. Right. Uh, and, and at some point, so the group, so he's, he's, what do you remember about him creating OD&D? I mean, was he, and I know you were young at the time and you were probably, as you said, trying to distract him from it at times, but, but do you remember, was he talking to you about it? Was he explaining his thought process on anything or is he just sort of solitary and typing away? Well, he would type away and I'd sit on his little day bed that he had right, right there. And the, and the wall would be filled with different cool books so um, I had already discovered um, reading but only at fifth grade. He used to read voraciously, and I was wondering, what the heck, Dad? Why are you wasting all your time when we could be doing things and playing games? And then he, he was in book three of the Conan series. And at that point, he said, wow, he said, when you're reading these books, you see what you really can be and what you are secretly inside. 
says you're six feet something or other, muscles are bulging, women, you know, just fall around you to be blah, 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 you know, and all this. And there's always an okay. And I, I picked up a book board while he was typing. And before he finished that third book, I had gone through all 12 of the ace edition of the Conan books. And I went from faking book reports in school to putting an extra credit all the time for all over any class I could because I became a, a lover of, of the reading. And, of course, that's that helped to reinforce the Ernie the Barbarian that had occurred when I was like eight years old playing chainmail. Whenever When Dad was first doing some chainmail, it was just type, typed rules from Jeff Perrin. And then he decided to, after we played a few of that, those games, then he started adding in some, okay, here's, oops, there's a surprise, you know, dragon or something like this. And uh, so uh, he created a fantasy supplement out of just trying to make it more fun than what it already was and adding in the ideas of all the books. So your, your nickname is a barbarian that, that dates to chain mail. Yes. Oh. Yes. It's in the front. It's inside chain mail. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, and and why? So what uh, what made you Ernie the Barbarian? Well, because um, at some point, I believe I was playing Vikings at the time, and Dad said, "Well, you you've now taken you know you've lost half your men in this battle, and you have to do a morale throw to see if you know if you run or whatever." And I said, "My men never run. We fight to the death. You know, any any man that tries to run from me, I'm cutting him down from the you know." <laughs> <laughs> And that's how it became Ernie the Barbarian. From Got a, it. Came on the sand table because that was it was a critical moment, and I I was doing well, but anything could, and I happened to get lower, or he'd made it a morale throw already, or something silly like that, and I was saying absolutely not. This game can't end on a single throw of the dice. <laughs> Oh, and, I, and I wanted to ask you about because you said you you he was reading the Conan at the time, then you started reading the Conan at the time. You know, for so many of us, it was Lord of the Rings, which which was our really inspiration. Then start playing D anD D, but it, it the sense I get is for your dad, it was more the pulpy kind of fantasy like Conan that that played more of a role. Um, is that true? Wait, any thoughts on that? Only only the Hobbit. The Hobbit was something that every time a new child was old enough to now be able to understand a little bit at night, then we'd pull out The Hobbit and read like a chapter every night. And so every time a new child would come into our family and was, then that would be, so The Hobbit got read over all the time. The Lord of the Rings was up to us as individuals. And I read it once and it was a little long and a little boring. But it had some interesting Especially parts. Especially book one. What? I know book one is yeah. terrible. Wait. We, we have a running controversy of you, James and I. Yeah, he's he thinks book one is long and boring. I think it's great. He hates Tom Bombadil. I love Tom Bombadil. But this is really not your problem. It's not about us. It's about Ernie. <laughs> well, but see, and I was being influenced, but I came to think that because my dad didn't just say, oh, this is boring. He said, here, look at this instead. So he'd aim me at Roger Zelazny with the Nine Princes in Amber. Or he would say, Margaret St. Clair, uh, the sound of his horn. Um, a Merritt, Creep Shadow Creep. Uh, he would just pour all this incredible good things. On, uh, and then he would read to me a little bit of Sax Romer, Fu Manchu. 
and the insidious yellow peril and all these things that be like, whoa, you know, yeah, this is happening. There's, there's nothing. There's no. There's no slowness here. I had a little trouble with H. Ryder Haggard. I don't. I don't think I've. I finished she, but I, on the second book, I put it down. It was like, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, and, and I wanted to ask because you had made a reference to the first uh, to the fantasy game, which right is, is is what your dad when he was typing it up, he originally called it the fantasy game, correct? Yes. And um, can, titles weren't important again to to me. It was just like let's play. That's right. that's the thing that there's so many people that have incredible bookshelves full of games. I have lots of games. I don't know if you can see my games are kind of disoriented here they're not all neat and whatever that's because every once in a while they get grabbed and used and put back carelessly as i'm digging through for the next game to do something else uh products should be used and abused just like i said oh just like my dad's player's handbook that i've now used and abused regularly throughout the throughout uh, the ages that. that's awesome that's, that's how things should be Yes, it's, and so for people who don't know, because we were talking about it before we came on the air, right, that is your father's copy of the Dungeon Master's Guide, correct? Yes. Now, he might have had more. It's oh, just, right. You know, it's one, and it has just a little pencil mark, which probably won't show up in the, the lower corner there. Yeah. Same G. Sort of, kind of. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to see with these things. Yeah. Let's just, again, he's... This wasn't something for posterity. This is just something that if he was at a table full of people and somehow things are getting picked up, you'd be hey, there's my, that's my G. Give me back my book. <laughs> it's very simple. Is If you flip through that, does he have handwritten notes in there? Um, not nearly as many as he's had in things like his Don't Give Up the mm. Ship and other things that he was um, changing. There might be. I don't remember so much. If so, it's it's only one or two. Very rare things, and it would be like charts and tables. Okay, so, so there's nothing groundbreaking like, you know, no. his thoughts on... What was, what was I thinking here, right? Right. <laughs> the yeah. spell's too powerful. No, and he certainly wasn't writing for the ages, trying to, you know... it was If, it's, if it is, it's just... An, it's, it's generally a scratch out and a number change by one in some direction to try to create maybe a more linear scale or something rather than just an arbitrary decision. That he had. And now I believe your your sister Cindy is credited with coming up with with taking it from being called the fan just generic the fantasy game to actually coming up with the name Dungeons and Dragons. Correct. She she's the one who picked out the one that he chose, but he he did it as a multiple choice. So yes, Cindy did that, but she didn't actually create the name Raw. She's the one who out of this whole list picked the name. And Dad said, "Yeah, that's the winner." So, uh, my sister Elisa had picked the name for the local school basketball and football team, the Eaglets. <laughs> so, Eastview Eaglets. So, I mean, well, that and and that's why you have to have a limited. It's that's why it's got to be multiple choice. Well, I created the Game Wizards, but for TSR when we left the Lizard Man. All right, the the Wizard logo. That was yes. my idea. I'd been working on the monster and treasure lists and getting bored, rolling up. My job was to get in the back of the books and start rolling things and then modifying it to try to, you know, not using dice purely. I was, I'm not a computer. The idea is to make something interesting for Phil's and I had to create a monster for it. And I created the, the water weird 
Um, and that was when I was in high school still. But uh, at that point, Dad called me up to the office and said, we're starting to get into family games and products. And he said, the Lizard Man's too, too wargaming. And as much as we all like wargaming, because the Lizard Man, I thought, was the best logo we ever had. Um, he said, we need something more family-oriented. And I had just recently been watching, you know, TV shows and cartoons and other things on the side. And I said, well, Bargain Town has the giant giraffe and Cootie has the cricket. And I said, but we are the fantasy guys. We are, we're the wizards. We're the game wizards. And he said, all right. And he, and he poured me a glass of Carvassier, lit up a cigar for me. Put your feet on the table, stay on the clock, don't punch out, because we had a, a, a clock there at 723 William Street. And um, I got to sit around for two hours and talk to him because I had made an executive you know, decision. <laughs> <laughs> and I got minimum wage for two hours on creating that. <laughs> and, and you mentioned 723 William Street. So, right, that was the first, right, building house bought by, I guess Blum, what was then. Bloom and Gygax. That was bought by them. The company had no credit yet. Okay, so they they bought that house together. And now that house is owned by Justin Lanasa, who is a gamer out of uh, Carolina. And he's slowly getting it fixed up. He's kicking out the, the poor uh, transient Mexicans that have been living there for years. And... Um, that's going to become a TSR Gary Gygax museum. Mm. And Justin already has a museum of the unusual, as well as a tattoo parlor. And he's got a business that makes CBD oil and sells fish. The fish poop feeds the plants, the plants filter, <laughs> you know. And it's, so he's, 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 he's a genius at his own level without a, a lot of uh, educational skills. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all raw talent. And he's it's, he's wonderful. He came to what, the last Geek Nation tour as well as the GaryCon before that. And that's how we got to meet. And I pointed out, so it's a shame this building's not being used. And he looked at it. He's a realtor as well. And he said, OK, I'm going to own this. <laughs> that's it's proceeding. That is, that is wonderful news. And, and can you tell us what you remember about 723 William Street? Well, Terry Kuntz and I did the electrical work in there which is not so great because Terry was probably about 19 or 20 and I was 16. So <laughs> with no, with no real experience. Um, so we were get, setting that place up for, for our use. Um, the kitchen was the shipping department. The basement was all the storage. Uh, the pantry was the ready stock where I would have everything from, uh, Lynn Carter's Hyborian Age or some sort of rules that were there. There'd be the, 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 the little pictures in an envelope that were from the inside of the original three books. We had the art maybe eight and a half by 11, so you could buy the sheets. Um, Battle Five Armies in the folio, uh, um, in the plastic bag before we ended up boxing it. All sorts of products like that. Um, Warriors of Mars, Empire of the Petal Throne, so that you know all these things, and and we would use um, in those days we would use just brown paper, and and tape to send you your your brown box. I mean this is just like big, um, butcher's paper almost only brown, the shipping paper, 
and there was no protection for those now $20,000 brown boxes or whatever when you're getting things shipped to you by the single. <laughs> can you tell us a bit, can you tell us about assembling cuz you helped assemble, right? The brown oh, boxes, right? Oh yeah. Um well the brown boxes came about because um oh, Mike Apple owned or Bud Apple was of the printing company and he'd taken over what had been um, I'm just <laughs> thinking it had been the hobby shop where we'd buy Airfix miniatures from Stan Anderson. And then that that left or right next door was Bud Apple's printing place. And he had a couple thousand of these brown boxes left over from some other big job he'd done. So we got a really cheap price for using these brown boxes. And then we had these labels printed to go on the spine and on the front cover. And lots of times I was actually licking the labels to put them on. My sisters would go, oh, and they had like a sponge. And oh, yes. so whether they're really aligned or not, I don't know, because it was being done by a whole family. And then another one of us would be taking the errata sheets and folding them over and then sticking them in the box. So it'd be like going around the kitchen table that'd get pulled out to assemble. That wasn't, you know, we wouldn't do, all, we didn't do the whole thousand. We would do 50 or whatever and, and, and get those ready and then fill the orders and have a few extras. And then when, when it would be time to make more, it would be like, okay, family, here's the time to make some more. And Don Kay and his family might have made a few too because there was some over at, on the Sage Street across from Eastview School. You know, it would be great if, if you go back in time and tell Mr. Apple, you know those brown boxes he got sitting here? One day, <laughs> they're going to be worth thousands. What? Um, so at Tom, some point, Tom Wom had a bunch of them that some of his uh, original prototypes games came in because there was some extra just brown boxes, and he had no idea. So they don't have the, the you know, the, the uh, labels put on them. But, and, and I assume then it becomes a white box, I assume, because you run out of brown boxes, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, and also we might have changed printers. We might have upgraded to patch press by then. Okay. And at some point then, not too long after you move to – well, I'm sorry. Before, before you, the move, the, the dungeon, the hobby shop opens at 723 – it debuts at 723 William Street, correct? With Terry Koontz running it. And then uh, Rob Kuntz becomes more full-time shipper. I was working with him a bit in the shipping department. And I'm working with Terry, and I'm still in school. And then as soon as I'm going to leave school, I'm going to get a full-time job in the hobby shop. And Terry says, I've, I've done all I want. I'm getting out of this and getting a, a real career and going to school for drafting, I believe. Uh, and so they, they hired Tom Wom, who's already been at several Gen Cons, to be our, um, our auctioneer. And they bring, he brings Tom Wom in to teach me uh, skills like being on time and, and all this sort of thing. And, of course, my friend Tom is absolutely the worst. We opened at 11 o'clock in the morning, and Tom would be late almost all every day. We'd have people waiting outside, and other people would have to open up the store for him. Because he has no track of time. He's a genius, a great game creator, bar, you know, bar none, board game creator. But, <laughs> and he doesn't believe that himself. <laughs> and what do you mean by an auctioneer? So what's, what's being auctioned? Um, 
any of uh, figurines, painted figurines, Napoleonics. Uh, my dad bought me my first copy of Nuclear War, uh, which is pre pre um, Rick Loomis doing it. Somebody else was putting out Nuclear War in the '60s, I think, um, and that was that was great. I wish I still had that. Um, there was some games about Vietnam that were being done. The people that went on to make um, GDW, not not game designers work, not the uh, not the British. But the ones that my my dad got it involved with the guys who made Traveler, so it'd be, you know, um, um, Wiseman mm-hmm. and Mark Miller. And now, now, so in the, around this time period, right around I think nineteen seventy seven or so, so you you are you are helping produce products too, right? Because you help with the, graduate high school, and I start being full time at the hobby shop. So, and, oh, just out of curiosity, did, did people at the hobby shop, did it like slowly more and more people start appearing as, as customers? Um, what was a typical day like in a hobby shop? Uh, a typical day was a long periods of, of dinking around, filling some mail order, cleaning up this, maybe going and helping with a few orders in the shipping department, and then suddenly somebody, the bell would ring and somebody was coming in, and I'd go, and, and then it would be fun and dealing with, because people would come at all kinds of odd times. Um, and then I had an idea that I was talking to uh, a couple guys from Great Lakes, because there was no hobby shops down in Illinois at that area that, that catered to this new Dungeons and Dragons thing, and these were guys were all learning how to be uh, different things. And the Great Lakes is a huge naval base. Um, and so then I said, well, why don't you guys come up and play? And they said, okay. So we lined it up so that on a Friday night, they'd bring a bunch of their friends. And they brought 20, 22 guys. But I'd already lined it up where, where Brian Bloom was my boss, not my dad. My dad hired me and said, you work for my partner because I'm not going to have nepotism in our company. He said, you can, you have the ability to come to my door anytime, knock on the door and get my attention, but it better be something that's important or an opportunity and not just like, well, this person's doing this to me or that person's doing this. So anyway, I, I was getting paid to run games for the first time. And uh, 22 people came in and we made $2,200 at night. And our average Friday night was maybe $1,000 for the whole day. Wait, were you working on commission? No, 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 no. But I, at least I was getting, again, that, that minimum and slightly raised <laughs> wage. And we'd eat pizza, and, and we had beer. And remember, drinking age was 18, so and wh- where was we- 78. Okay, and, and, and the, the Hobby Shop Dungeon, of course, that was on the first level of the TSR building, right? Because you're going to move to yeah. 772 Main Street, and then you've got a second and a third, and of course, I no, believe— no third. no third at 7723, just two layers, two levels. 723 Williams is two, right, and then 772 when you move, yeah. then you've got you, right, the, old, the old Hotel Claire, if I recall, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, yes, yes. Uh, have you ever been on the—did you ever go to the fourth floor? <laughs> you mean there, there's— there was a little attic-y thing that had been added, and yes, Arrow Otis's foot went through the ceiling once up there. That's what we heard. Uh, but yeah, we'd go up there all the time, then we'd continue up to the roof. And on the roof, 
we would hang around and play games and watch the Flatlanders. Flatlanders are Illinois people. Um, that come for tourism. Um, and we do things like drink beer, smoke dope, and play with the Tom Wom's cats and things like that up on the, on the roof and shout down to people that couldn't see us up there. You know, once we had some, some poor guy who was slightly mental thinking that God was talking to him, <laughs> Rob Coots was telling this guy, you know, calling him by name and suddenly he says to Rob says, you know, out of nowhere, he says, make sure you eat your maple. And this kid, guy's looking around is like, Oh, Rob, you know, he's out. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, and while you were, while you were working there, you work on right monster and treasure assortment and also the dungeon geomorphs, right? Set two, yeah. right? So, yes. so can Dave, you tell us a little Dave, bit about that? Dave, oh, I was doing one and two and all, but it was Dave Sutherland who would finish them off. My job was to make them uh, just on graph paper and Dave Sutherland make them pretty. Okay, so my job was just to make sure they'd work, that you could spin them around, and that. And if a door didn't match with another door from a geomorph, then it just meant it was a, uh, a false door. Okay, so there'd be different options that way. And uh, the geomorphs, I've actually, well, Terry Coots, through my first levels for what became my hobby shop dungeon, and I'll go to level five because it's made of. The geomorphs again. You, it's got it's in blue because at that yeah. era. Oh, we got it. Yeah, it looks great. That's yeah. awesome. So he did these, and the the higher you go, or I should say, the deeper you go, the more the more stone you would have. That was kind of an idea that Dad had started, and Terry kept on. So it would be like level three or four. Look at that. And, and that's. Uh, that's why you're working as so it, when you, as a clerk in the hobby shop dungeon, yeah. you you are that's what you're working on, right? During your downtimes when you start devising that, and that's your campaign, right? Well, yes. Terry had drawn these maps because he wanted to be a you know a draftsman and this kind of thing, and then he said, "I did it on company time. You take over and do something with it. Maybe play some games." But he says, "I'm out of here. You know, I love gaming. Terry loved gaming, but it just wasn't." So he got into his Chevy Nova and, and off he went. <laughs> <laughs> Big burst of smoke. So, hey, Dan. Uh, now, yeah. Hey, just before, uh, so we've got folks on the chat, and actually, our dear friend Vic Dorso, the Scourge of the North, was the one who uh, arranged this, who uh, obviously knows Ernie a bit. And so, thanks to Vic for coming on and uh, being a friend of the show. He, he asked the question Whatever happened to the castle in the hobby shop? Do you know what happened to that, Ernie? Oh, are you talking about the, uh, yes, that that was the original TSR display, and I've discussed that many times, and I even have it on the front of my page as um, the little thing that you see. That that was destroyed on the orders of Kevin Bloom mm -hmm. when I was out in, in Beverly Hills with Dungeons & Dragons Entertainment Corporation, and he told Jeff Leeson, another good friend of mine, to throw it out. So Jeff gutted up, took out all the figures, took out the wiring, and then broke it up and threw it in the dumpster. Oh. It's Did a horrible think? waste. And I have one of the figurines that Jeff sold later on when times were tough for him, and another friend bought and gave me to help as a memory. I have one of the fighters. Because that was six, six individual rooms that showed this full party going into the dungeon and then fighting things and taking damage at the very end, they're, they're dragging two bodies as well as the rest of them. When they run into a red dragon 
and there's smoke coming out of the dragon's mouth and you don't wow. know who wins or who and it's a light it was a constant light that was going from room to room to room showing the progress of the adventure it was created by a fellow who owned the local <laughs> liquor store john jetta and he was a a sculptor and other artist type and he did that for five hundred dollars for my dad did was it indicated why it should be destroyed uh, they were they were dumped they were getting rid of the hobby shop because they had said that their distributors were complaining that we were competing against their customers mm. so the idea was they were trying to downplay the mail order and not have a hobby shop anymore mm. Kevin Bloom was was an idiot um and, and in posterity he'll be shown to be such was and and the last thing from Vic is he just wants to remind you that the Bears are not going to win this year, and and I have to, and I have to agree because the Bucks are going to win because uh, you know we have Tom Brady now, so they. they oh, now uh, you're a Tom Brady fan. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm apparently I'm a Patriots fan because they've all moved down to Tampa, which is where you know I uh, I spent 30 years there before moving to. Oh, Orlando, what you get, Gronkowski? So. That's right, we got Gronkowski too. Before we know it, they'll all be here. So you know. Well, I, I spent a year in Tampa when I was not gaming anymore, and it, it's, it's very beautiful and warm, whatever else. But when I would go to the bars looking for, and the bars were different than up north here. They sure. were more, they were real low key. Uh, I couldn't find any fans. There were there was an old guy once I ran into, but I'd have to ask to have the football game turned on in the bar. That's what was amazing to me. Here I am as rabid Bears fan. It was just, you know, I, I would, when I lived in, in Beverly Hills, I once had to go to this TV that had rabbit ears in my dad's bedroom to get with snow a game where they were playing against the, the Chargers in yeah. San Diego. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, the Bucks fans, it's notorious, you know, they'd be, we'd wear our orange back in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And then during the winter, because the Bucks were part of the same division as the Bears and the Vikings and the Packers and Detroit. Of course, all the games in December were with, they were in, at Tampa, and all the Bears fans would come, and, and three quarters of the stadium would be Bears fans, and then the next week would be the Packers fans and the Vikings, because it was like, oh, winter vacation, this is awesome, oh. we'll come down there, beat up the Bucks, and fly back up north. It was like uh, going Bucks to Disney. And the didn't have enough fans of their own, that's, that's all. That's right. Well, half <laughs> of them were, well, half of them were transplants, they were Bears fans, but when they lived in Tampa. They were Tampa fans until the Bears showed up, and then they pulled out their old Bears jerseys because it'd be like, Bob, I just saw you at the seat, and next week he's wearing a Bears jersey. But I, dig- I digress. But uh, yeah, anytime <laughs> you want to come down, we'll be happy to. Uh, uh, now the Bucks have a chance. It should be pretty interesting. <laughs> it should be. Florida wasn't good for me because at that point I, I dabbled with foolishness, and ah. uh, it was too easy to get powder. Yes, and. And that, that that used up pretty much my money, and then I ended up coming up here being poor, like crap back together, and moving in with my dad of all things at thirty something, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Florida. Florida is the famous. Life yeah, is Florida so cool. is. Uh, that's what it's known for. Here on vacation, leave on probation is uh, is a very famous uh, <laughs> famous line here. So, well, I'm glad you survived that. Uh, yeah, I I, ha- uh, I ended up in two hospitals down there before it was oh. all. Oh so my goodness! Let's just say it's an experience that's that's happened. It was fun at the time, but a lot of other people I know that experienced that kind of fun are no longer with us. Yeah, and yeah, they, yeah. You know, they've they passed on. So, mm. 
it's not some I, I spent also running a couple hobby shops. I've always spent a lot of time trying to talk to the people to understand what you're doing, the kids. And I think of them as kids, even though they're in their 40s and maybe even up to 50 now, you know, because <laughs> I'm 60. Um, but I was always trying to say it doesn't hurt to look, experiment, but use knowledge and things and don't be an idiot. And just things can grab you by the cojones. <laughs> just, <Yeah. laughs> just never lose control. And I've, I wish I could follow my own advice always. <laughs> well, it's very true. That's, but, you know, that's the interesting part is, and I know we'll talk about it later, is, you know, at some point you switched from being, you know, your dad. And, and like a lot of 70s families, you're playing games together because that was kind of the thing every Friday or Saturday to now you're part of the business. And now you're part of, a, 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 you know, a major enterprise and the celebrity that comes with it and the, and the fame. And, and then having that, uh, you know, going, like you said, through the travails to where you had to basically retrench yourself, um, you're almost like a child star in some ways. Did you ever feel that way? Not, not so much that, but I really discovered women, and women didn't think games were cool. <laughs> well, we figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> now, now suddenly there's women that do think it's cool. I'm yeah. teaching my fiancé still, and she's learned very well. And she, oh. But it was very difficult at first, you know. She was like, and I discussed, oh, yeah, there's Gygax magazine when I first met her and was hanging out at this beautiful park, which we've, which we've stopped developers from destroying so far. The whole town and now the new mayor we've helped to put in is also someone who says it must stay green space. There's 192 acres here in Lake Geneva that maybe, just maybe, could end up being the Giant Lands Park at some point, oh, which is a whole other awesome. project. Uh, as long as they can somehow try to make it green, talk these developers into selling, right? It's an old golf course. Ah, I gotcha. And it's full of deer and hawks and just wonderful things. Because once you pave something, it almost, except for Detroit, it never comes back. Yeah. Or maybe Chernobyl. They never, they never, the green <laughs> goes away and stays away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we hope that works out. Definitely. <laughs> Wouldn't you love uh, to have a fantasy-based theme park here in Lake Geneva? Uh, there, is, be awesome. there is one other that's that's looking kind of interesting to me and others, and that's out in Utah. But that's you know, imagine what we could do here. Well, well, we had an idea for a nursing home here in Florida that was right. RPG Kate, right? That would be that's, good too, don't you think? That's right. Like yeah. In Jim Ward's Metamorphosis Alpha, there's a Wolfoid's old folks home. My dad and I had great fun killing lots of wolfoids and terrorizing and doing things as as the uh, vigilists. Vigilists is a group we created. Uh, humans are in charge of everything. You can have a tentacle, whatever, but as long as you're human based and you can you can have animal, you know, mutants as friends and whatever and subjects. But the humans are in charge. And that was the vigilists, and we were enemies of the androids and the wolfoids and the dogoids. Metamorphosis Alpha, another great game. And Jim Ward, he hit a home run with that. And and do you remember your dad befriending Jim Ward? I mean, the story's been told, of course, where they run into each other at the bookstore. They're they're buying the same books. And and Jim, of course, is a teacher at the time. And so he, your dad can't pay him enough money to come there until, I believe, around 1980. Do, do you remember that friendship oh, I, being struck I had up? a lot to do with that because— Jim Ward was a substitute teacher at that time. He wasn't even a full-time teacher yet. He was living in Elkhorn, and he was a substitute teacher, and he taught me a couple days in Badger, and we'd already played some games together. So his, his uh, 
being in Prairie du Chien happened after that. And I went up to see Jim Ward for three weeks when I turned 18. And we we played 10 games of uh, Imperium, which I beat Jim at every game. Nice. And, and at the final game, he finally had me, it looked like, but he put all of his ships on all the planets instead of having any in the... Because whoever loses a war almost always starts the next war. In a nutshell, he had battleships and heavy cruisers and things, and I was going over them with fighters and destroyers and blowing them up on the ground because anything on the ground has only the defense factor of one instead of his normal 10 or 12 or whatever. So I just had wiped out almost all of his fleet, and he took the game and threw it in the air. <laughs> and I remember, but I mean, I spent those three weeks with Jim, and he had his three little sons. Uh, Theon was just an infant, and I was even feeding Theon peas. And that was when I shaved off the mustache at one time and let it grow again. Uh. And then Jim Ward said that, I, that he was earning $13,000 a year. And I said, wow, that's not much. And he said, no. And I said, well, maybe TSR can do better. So I went home to my dad and, and said, you know, Jim Ward would blah, blah, blah. And then they offered him, I think, double that. I think they offered him 26. And he said, sure. And he came down. So he was at Prairie du Chien, which was beautiful. It's right where the Mississippi and the Wisconsin rivers meet. And it was hmm. a, a fine spot. And, so, yeah, and I had it, something to do with that. Jim Ward awesome. and I got together like that. And Excellent. And, and I'd like to ask you about Byrne, right? So uh, one of, one of the, the character in, right, the, in, in Hamlet. Oh, Bernay. Uh, Bernay, I'm sorry. Bernay. Uh, Bernay. Um, so, Rufus is uh, Skip Williams. Right, and and I'd like to describe. So, okay, so Bernay, of course, is an NPC in one of the most beloved adventures that your dad wrote, *Village of Hamlet*. And I'd like to read the description of Bernay. Now, I'm not because it was based upon one of your characters, correct? You, you, was, you yes, we we so, play tested it. Skip and I were the play testers. So I'm not saying expressly that this describes you or your character, but I'm just going to read the description. It's his most wonderful mage of Hamlet. This NPC is clever and a trifle on the greedy side. All services rendered will be paid for handsomely. So it, <laughs> is it, um, let me see. He's very conscious of his duty to protect the village and to watch for evil, so any adventuring will be calculated to accomplish those ends and pay him a third of the treasure gained as well. He is not likely to risk his life or to be duped. He is on the young side for a magic user, average in appearance and dress, and will often frequent the welcome wench. Yes, that's obviously me as a young man. <laughs> Okay, that's been good. That was easy. <laughs> that was quick. Next. Oh, and what, what's sad about that is that later on, there was another fantasy game site that took that and and ran with this because they have a they have a more liberal viewpoint on on lifestyles, and they said here is the first example of two men sharing a castle together. And having a romantic relationship. Ah, you're the you're the literally the Fred and Ernie of uh, of the D and D, as like they have with the Sesame Street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Oh, oh, and and just the whole idea of Skip Williams and I ever in any state of undress or whatever. 
we were all we were all childhood buddies, but not that close. <laughs> so, so you you obviously got to play test a lot of, if not perhaps almost all of, I assume your dad's adventures modules. All of them, certainly. Okay. Uh, up, to, up to the time when he was with TSR, and when he was no longer with TSR, only sporadically with the. Well, I helped do a lot with Dangerous Journeys because that's when I came back from Florida and was pretty much penniless. And um, I was staying there with, with his new wife, Gail, and infant Alex. And so I was working on how much protection you get if you had epaulets on, on your shoulders. And because we we'd created the concept then of, of armor not make it harder to hit, but taking damage off. So you'd start getting whether you're a torso hit and all this, if there's armor there, and then you remove so many points of damage and how much damage the weapons do. And I was working on things like a cleaver, like just think of a big meat cleaver, how much damage that would do and all these sorts of things. So that was that was the way I was paying my rent. <laughs> to a dangerous journeys. But but something doesn't add up because so you you've been through Tomb of Horrors, correct? Yes. Yeah. I mean, not all the way. I uh, I, quit, I quit at the uh, about the middle point at the temple with all the pews, and if you touch something, the lightning bolt goes striking down. At that about that point, I just took off. I uh, said, this is getting too dangerous. But I I I I I used up a, a ring of weakness in the spot where it takes the ring to open something up. And thereby, therefore, I still had the ring that had been there that you were supposed to use, and that ended up being a telekinesis ring. And I had some total um, no-saving-throw poison that had been met, that was inside that ring that was supposed to kill you when you put it on. And I had that in a cloth. So I had that as with a telekinesis ring and a special little pouch where I could push that off onto somebody, a, a super foe of some sort, and kill them. Uh, and I had, or Robilar even. At that point, Rob and I were still getting along, but Rob had turned evil. And it was like, okay, you know, I, as much as I want to trust him, he would still be playing his character if he backstabbed me. So I have to have, you know, I'm reading a lot, rereading for the second time and just loving them again, the Harry Dresden stories by Jim Butcher. Hmm. And I'm just, it just gets off because it's so obvious that he is a D&D-er. And I uh, and I so well, I and, and that makes sense because yeah, because you only right, you said that you've only lost one character right in one of your dad's games, and it, and it was only due to my mom uh, complaining for three hours that I was late for bedtime to go back, you know, to go to school. I think I was even in eighth grade, so I was like thirteen. And, and your dad killed kill them off from. I'm sorry, go ahead. Starvate, yeah, starvation. Because I was on a pool level, so he couldn't do thirst. So how do you die of starvation and and something that you've only done, you know, eight hours of play or something? You know, come on. But <laughs> mom was just. He says, "God damn it, son! You know, you're getting me in trouble." And, you know, <laughs> and so he said, "All your items will still be here if you could ever find this again." But he said, "Excuse me," and he grabbed all my maps. And he said, and he said, okay. And he found, okay, these are the ones that you drawn today. He gave me back my old maps, but anything that had been done before that, he tore up. So, you know, and he says, you're going to get to roll a new character, but not tonight. And I went to bed crying, like, a, you know, <laughs> to me that was 
that was much more, you know, that was worse than getting burned or physical damage was having my character killed. So that was, yes. That was and, did, and when you play games uh, with your dad, did he, because we've heard this story about being in the study where you guys would be at a table and he would be at his desk and there was a filing cabinet and he was kind of behind the filing cabinet and you couldn't see him, you just heard him. Okay. Not, not, in, not in that room. That room we would be sitting on his day bed or on a chair and he would be at his desk. Now in the basement that had been, at first, that was a big sand table. And then the sand table got moved to Don Kay's uh, shed because my dad got the uh, shoe repair equipment. Our, our grandmother, his, his mother, bought the shoe repair because he couldn't get a job after the fireman's fund. He tried, he tried tool and die making for a day, got, ended up black and blue, and stuff like this, or a metal press spinning, something like that. So anyway... There was all these failures going on. We were on food stamps. Things were tough. So he was doing shoe repair, and he got and made the tables for the sh for some of his area, and they were made from the bowling lanes of the Claire Lounge, which is where we ended up later buying. Okay, so, I mean, not all the bowling lanes. It was one or two bowling lanes. So he had this huge, long tables, and there was a divider there so he could hang up uh, hammers and all these different tools and awls. And then when the shoe repair was gone and we were doing some, some minor storage in the basement and assembly in the basement. So we would sit where the shoe repair equipment had been as players and dad and Rob would be on the other side. Cause Rob was in learning how to code DM with my dad and then Rob made his own dungeon where he would run my dad through, and that's where you read Thonareth. Um, oh, why can't I think of all a uh, Bigby, Sigby, Grigby, Sin the Cleric, all these fun little names of all these guys that were all my dad's characters. He he would play all sorts of different characters at once, and but all the all kinds of rules that were made all happened due to my playtests and other people's. But I was the most prolific guy because I was always bothering to play because it was so much fun. Um, half experience for your for your lackeys. I was the first guy to start hiring uh, sidekicks, and suddenly my sidekicks were getting to be a lot more powerful than all the other players. So I had to try to do something to, to slow that down. And then he created a rule that, okay, if you play a sidekick and go out without your main guy, then he'll get full experience. So that way you could go with the fresh new players that are coming in from Woodstock, Illinois, or whatever, and not be this lording over, telling everybody what to do. So instead of having the sixth or seventh level guy, I'd have my second or third level sidekick who would then be adventuring with all these other people. Right. And even though I could help them, I wasn't technically in charge anymore. I wasn't the power character. And you and you're responsible, at least in an indirect way, of course, by some spells that are named after, uh, right? The, the floating disc, and then you've also got uh, what is the uh, tensor's transformation. Can you tell us a little bit about how those spells came to bear the name of your character? Well, the transformation is because I acted like a fighter, and as soon as I threw whatever spells I could to be of assistance, I'd step in with a staff start beating on the opponents. The only difference is I didn't have armor, so it was easier to hit. But in those days, even damage and everything was all, to start with, uh, six-sided dice, no matter what you were using. 
the six-sided die. And maybe if my dad might have done, he might have had a great sword, be two six-sided dice or something for damage. And then he started changing things as time went on. Encumbrance rules were made purely because of like, wait a minute, how can you be carrying 20 pots of oil and a lantern and this? <laughs> you're, you're, wait, you're, you're to blame for encumbrance? I don't know. I, I, I don't know in, in particular, but as we... <laughs> That's I, a yes. I, I certainly look for any loopholes I could find. Uh, um, and what about, I've also read uh, Kona Cold being fifth, not third level. You're somehow responsible for that? Well, I created the spell completely um, and researched it and spent maybe 90,000 gold pieces and whatever developing it. Uh, I don't know if... I might have only been a... a Necromancer. It might have only been ninth level. Could have been ninth or tenth. Uh, but he said I could start doing spells, and that's because I was getting pissed at burning up or blowing apart all these magic items and jewels and things when I'd kill things. So I tried to create something that would basically only destroy potions. And and then not even all those. The oils might survive, whatever. But the idea being... So, and... It, it was more, it didn't have blowback. So I stopped the blowback damage and I stopped destroying items. And because I'd gotten a portable hole, the only one in the game, I was able to then take something that I'd frozen and shove it into the hole and let it thaw out and then peel off all the items and get rid of the carcass. It's like a defroster. Right. <laughs> so, oh, so, so your dad was like, okay, fine, but it's fifth. Not third. Fourth for a while. Fourth for a while, but not the same. So in other words, you're gonna have to do fire. You're gonna have to do the fire stuff for a while. It started at third, and no time at all it became fourth. He said, "This is too powerful." <laughs> he said, "Oh, the shifting of the changes and the power things. It's 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 gonna take more skill and it's harder to memorize." And then finally, when he was publishing, he we had no idea. He changed it to fifth. He said, "No, this this spell allows you to get way too many items because he's always." He was afraid of us being junk shops. And a little bit of the reason I started getting lackeys was not only to help me, but also to be able to pass on my plus one items that I didn't want now because I had plus two, three, or four, or whatever. You know, I was like, oh, but I got all this cool stuff, so let's start others off. Now, when, when, and, and haste, are you also to blame for haste, aging? For age, oh, absolutely. Because I, I abused that in those days. I could throw spells hasted uh, twice as quick. Oh, so I, ooh, wow. So I, I, would, I would do a haste on us. I'd then throw a slow on the en enemies, and spells would be flying, and, my, and all my friends, we'd be getting four-for-one attacks. But <laughs> just beating the crap out of things that we should be being beaten by because we were you know, these little blurs of action. But yes. Yeah. Do you feel that your dad went overboard in reaction to your play of the magic user by giving, in first edition, the magic user a lowly four-sided die for hit dice? Well, obviously, um, I, I think that it's only because of my excellent play. That's right. <laughs> he had to keep you down. That's right. He had yeah. to put training wheels on you. He was trying to... He's nerfing you, the original nerfing. Now, all, what's, uh, all the go time, ahead. he would yeah. constantly. I mean, I had like six or eight employees, and nobody else had any. 
And then when I went and got a castle, suddenly my guys decided that, oh, we don't like my the dwarf and the elf don't get along. So I, I kept the dwarf because I had speed boots on him and a dwarven throwing hammer and a plus three shield and plus two armor. So he had cooler stuff than my elf that might have had a wand of fear and all this stuff. So that he he rolled and he had animosity where they'd get elves and dwarves have a minus two to like each other. And he rolled for every character I had to see how much they liked the other characters on two six sided dice. Mm. Okay, and then he said, so now he says, you get to choose which guys you're going to keep looking at this flow chart, seeing, you know, but this guy, this guy doesn't like that guy. (laughs) So then when they went off, of course, Rob and Terry, these thieves, started offering them money. And then suddenly other people's had already leveled up characters. So all of us were back equal again. You see, Dad was always doing things to try to keep it so that I couldn't be in power or rob. Or, but I think it was mostly me. You know, this is my perception, of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, that you know, Dad was always doing horrible things to put me back in my place so that I couldn't rule the whole world and be in charge of Greyhawk. Well, that's interesting with the Kona Cold <laughs> because my son and I were just talking about that. Um, the first, we were looking through Player's Handbook. Uh, we had just played our Wednesday night game, which is still first edition. My son plays fifth edition with his friends, but with us, we play first. And we were talking about Kona Cold, and I said, it's an amazing spell. And he's like, oh, I hate it. Uh, and I'm like, why? Well, because it's zero range. But it makes sense now speaking to you because you were not afraid of fighting. He plays the magic user who sits in the back, and the, ma- the Kona Cold, you have to get up. You know, it starts, it emanates from your, you know, from the magic user. Bigger. So in order not to blast your own people, you gotta you gotta somewhat be near the front, and he doesn't like that. But your style was, hey, go for it. Let's 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 do that. So that's totally fascinating. I'd be in the second rank. Yeah, I'd have have a couple. Ooh, I love a party. (laughs) (laughs) My phone just came on. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us about the water weird? Right, because you came up with the water weird, right? Yes, that was, again, doing the monster and treasure list, if I remember right. Um, uh, I, I, the, the thing that really was fun was the idea of that, it, that being a creature of the element of water, that it could have a chance to control water elementals. Because I, I came up with the idea that what would I do against a monster that can't come and get me outside a pool, but I want to get the treasure in the pool or wherever this thing is? So, of course, as a magic user, I would try to make a, a, a water elemental to fight this. So then I came up with the idea that they have this chance every turn of taking over and controlling. And I like the idea of the drowning rather than an actual cutting damage or whatever else. So it was just it was just sitting around as a as a 17 year old. I think it was then uh, on the clock, tick, 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 sitting around at 723 William Street at the table, coming up with ideas. Uh, after school. That's great. And, and, and can you tell us a little bit about your dad's writing of first edition, right? And so you've mentioned, you've been clear that, right, you, it's, it's, you wish everyone would play first edition. You love it. Do, do you remember, what, what, what was your dad's thought process? Because first edition seems had to have a very different feel from original D&D. Well, original, I, I think that they weren't so different at first. Well, what happened is, is that we were seeing games everywhere 
that really weren't being played at all like our games. There was all kinds of weirdness. And when we would go to conventions and try to run tournaments, things weren't lining up perfectly. There was all kinds of people that had cock-eyed ideas and house rules and things. So then my dad, and also when my dad started OD&D, the idea was that you would draw your own dungeons. And Brian didn't like that. Brian was saying, hey, we can, we can package dungeons for people. And dad says, well, we can do a few of these, and that'll basically give them a kickstart so they can then jump and do their own creative material from there. But Brian was more into, I think this could be like, and we, he was reading and, and all the uh, Destroyer series of novels, Richard Sapin and Warren Murphy. Uh, and they, they, they were fun, but easy to read and you'd burn through them yeah. and have to get more. Okay. And Brian liked that idea. And that's why with our geomorphs, when you see those, they're done in that light blue with the darker blue lines. That's because with the early photocopying machines, which Brian owned one of, it would just come out an all gray on the photocopy. So that was all done to prevent people in colleges, whatever, stealing your gaming products right. as much as possible. Because for every every game we were selling, there might have been five others that were being photocopied off at, in Berserkly, Berkeley College and all these other places. Uh, mm. <laughs> And, and, and what is it about first edition that, that you like so much? Well, again, I want to just stress that I was happy playing with a three-book set and the Greyhawk supplement. That, that, there was no reason to add anything more and go from it. Of course, there wouldn't be a big company. <laughs> uh, first edition, again, it just it's so comfortable. It, 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 it allows you to create and it's only guidelines it's 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 well experienced laid out guidelines that have been done through lots of play test but at some point if you want to modify things and you're and you can get a group of people to agree that what you're doing is fun then it's the perfect game it's not set in stone um, it's like what if you want to do something nice to your personal house and yard and you set up this, you are right. It's not, you know, you're not in better homes and gardens. You're not competing against somebody else. But we want it so that when you went to any any place, whether Origins or Gen Con East or any of these other things, you could sit down and you could play with somebody. And if you go to Turkey, and Brazil, you can play the same game with somebody else, and you can get in as long as somebody's translating and helping you guys. You can find and enjoy gaming with people all around the world and anywhere and enjoy the same product. Yes, in, in, indeed. And were there any rules in particular that your dad didn't use? Because, you know, I think a lot of people said, right, have said the house rules are sort of death, right, where it was like based on your con. We, we didn't use um, we didn't use the armor weapon chart yeah. where you know an axe would do would hit unarmored maybe better and, and have big trouble against plate mail and some of that so we didn't bother with that chart um, there wasn't that many resurrections from for at least my side um, though I think a few lackeys might have um, 
and your your constitution didn't go down every time. I, I think that's a more modern no. rule. That's your your but that was the the maximum amount of times you could be raised, if I remember right, was what yeah. it's put up there. Um Tensor, I think, had a sixteen or seventeen con. Erex's cousin had a high con. But we got to shift our numbers where we wanted them. We got to move we would roll the six things and set them and, and what stats we want. Yeah, I think your dad used method, what is known as method one, right, in the DMG with the four die six. Yeah. He used the three highest and then a range. Yes. And is it, now it's, um, it would be remiss if I didn't note that your dad played a gnome illusionist thief on occasion, correct? Uh -oh. not, that, uh, not that I ever know of. Uh, well, we need to move uh, not, on. We need to move that, on that. to another subject. Now, moving to the mid-'80s, I believe you you go to California, don't you, that's, to, that's what he's, to work on the cartoon. Well, James, this is really this issue. We don't need to discuss it anymore. He says, I love gnomes. Um, obviously, Ernie's memory is fading, I, and, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, you know it's, his information. I, this is all rumor and hearsay he's, he's giving he's, us here. Um, Ernie, Ernie's like, can you give me? Can you give me 90 seconds away? I know it's, it's a, but I, I take Yes, we have an intermission clip. Absolutely, we can do that. Right. We'll, come, we'll come back in 90 Please seconds. Do. All right, we are, <laughs> we are back. Uh, I was just actually showing commercials from the 80s, which will be a good segue. You know, the, the uh, fit, uh, miniatures that you could buy, the uh, action figures, and all the games from the 80s. LGN figures. I'm sorry? The LGN uh, toy That's company. That's right, so. Figures, so kind guess. of that could be a good segue. You're a trek over to California, right, Dan? Is that the yeah? Cause, yeah, right. Eighty four, eighty five. You go to you go to Beverly Hills, right? Absolutely. And I get there by the time the cartoons at episode four, and Dad transfers responsibility for that as well as other things, and he says, "I'm going to try to work on getting movies and and other things done here, and you can work on the cartoon." He also had me do a placemat for Orange Julius that almost worked until suddenly the uh, demon scare, the CEO said, we can't have anything to do with these, with these people. They have something to do with. Oh, yeah. All wait, that what foolishness. You, wait, what do you mean by a uh, placemat for Orange Julius? Uh, it was supposed to be a little placemat for kids to be able to, to like, uh, Adventure and go through a you know, maze. Draw, penta dra yeah, yeah. draw pentagram, sacrifice, you know, sacrifice your parents. <laughs> no, nothing. I mean, it's, you're having, you're having an Orange Julius gonna, and you're sacrificing cats. What's, what's the problem? <laughs> no, not my family. It would have been no. When cats. I sacrifice a cat, I always drink Orange <laughs> Julius. <laughs> when, I serve, when I serve the Dark Lord, I get the banana Orange Julius. That's right. Yeah. It's so hot in hell. <laughs> <laughs> I need a cool orange Julius. It's so, ridic it's so right. ridiculous. I also went to Universal Studios and got to go on the tour. And when I was talking to one of their vice presidents, we were trying to work it out where there would be uh, like a credit card because they were going to do an arcade game that then would be sold out. And the idea in those days, there was shells in the arcades where you'd sit in a shell and they would paint something different or put stickers over them and put and, and push in the electronics for that particular item. But otherwise it would have the same joystick and all the other things in there. And the idea was going to be that you could then have the first level might be um, World War One fighting planes and, and doing this stuff. And then after that, it would be space attack. And the idea would be that 
I was creating the idea where your your code would tell what level and what you were so that when you went to a machine in Tampa, Florida, you could then go to someplace in Baylor, Maine or somewhere, wow. Bangor, Maine, and, and stick it in the machine and you'd be playing again just like where you were. Remember, this is 1984, right. 85 technology we're talking yeah. about. I, and I also co-authored four books, The Sagar the Barbarian with Flint Dilly that have my dad's name on them. And I was a ghostwriter with him. And we'd sit in the in the old horse stable at the estate. And he used an old IBM with an orange screen word processor. And we'd crank out. And I would also had to have this big artist legal pad, or not legal, but a, a drawing pad. And so that would be, it's kind of a, it's, those books were pick a path with combat and experience points. Mm. And those were a lot of fun. They were sold through Simon & Schuster here and Penguin in uh, England. And and when you come back, right, it's in 85, not long. I assume you're back 86, when you— 86, I come back. Oh, you come back in 86. Okay, so so when you were in Beverly Hills is is when your dad, right, was was, was forced out of TSR then? I, he wasn't—he was—when I went to Beverly Hills, he was still a part of TSR— but he was now, they said, well, go on. You're, you're getting in the way of progress. Here's, go off, spend some money, work on a new thing. His dad had, oh, we're going to get this movie. We're going to do all this. He said, okay, go with your pipe dreams. Go away. And we'll run business here because we know what we're doing. We, I've, and, and Brian Bloom, very intelligent man. He's now deceased. Very intelligent man with an incredibly short attention span. He would take a game, play it, try to figure out the exact odds and permutations of actions, and then try to play a game as if it was only uh, following the best courses. And then he'd be surprised when he didn't always win. Uh, and, and then he would lose interest in something. He'd go on to something new. So that's when he had his brother there. It's, okay, Kevin, run things and whatever, and... and in fact, when the company ended, when when Brian sold out, he just went back to tool and die making. He had to be pulling $200,000 a year. How could he be, you know, at TSR? But he just wasn't comfortable with that because there was no change. You know. But you're, but you're yeah, so, I mean, you're 20-something you're, you're years old in Beverly Hills. And you're making all yeah. these products and you're living a life, you know, in suburban Wisconsin. And now you're, you know, in the middle of California. Was that a culture shock or, or what, what was your? No, it was no, and we'd fly back once in a while or I'd drive. Sometimes I'd fly back and as the company was downsizing, I'd then drive another company car out to California for somebody else in our, to, to use in our company. Um you know, I loved it, and I was very single. And, you know, we had a pool, a hot tub, and it was just, it was, you go pick a peach off the tree. If you got, if you had a sunburn, you go to the uh, aloe vera plant and break it off and rub it on your skin. <laughs> the geckos would be running around, and I'd have women laying it beside me at the, you know, and delicious bikinis serving champagne. It was just, it was good. It was good to be there. But did did, did that time then um, cloud the seriousness of what was happening back in, in the in 
back in Wisconsin, back at TSR, were you guys painfully aware of what was happening there? Or were you aware of it, I guess, from your perspective? Dad would once in a while say they're, they're keen up about something here again and get upset and try to do something. And then what he really got upset was when he found out that Kevin Bloom was, was trying to find bankers to sell the company mm. to. And that's when he went and found some other backers of his own to come in. And that's when we started bringing in and creating a, um, a new uh, board of directors. And they kicked, they kicked um, Kevin out, and that was a huge battle. And then Dad ended up bringing in Lorraine Williams, who was Flit Dilly's sister, older sister. And, yeah, she had the balls in the family. Holy Christmas. Think of, like, an uh, uh, ogre <laughs> and put it in a dress. Yeah. It's just, it, you know, and, and what background did, you know, because I don't know, except, you know, of the le- the infamousness, what was her background that made her qualified to run, you know, a pretty large corporation at that point? She was um, involved with a major charity uh, at, a, at a high level, a board level or something else. Um, and she did successfully, you know, out finagle and help push Kevin Bloom out of there, even though they had the majority share of stock at the time. Because at the, um, our company had gotten to the point where we had 367 employees. Now, those weren't all creating TSR product. Right. Uh, there was a whole big batch of people that had been relatives of the Blooms. They bought their whole company out of Indiana, the Greenfield Needle Women. So while different girlfriends of mine enjoyed getting uh, different needlepoint kits and things and other paint-by-numbers and other crap that they had, that was one of the many ways to, to throw money down a hole. Plus, they decided that instead of, uh, they wanted to always find somebody else's product and some other way to make money that wasn't giving dad royalties. Now, they had changed, and this is, this is a hot topic, but uh, they changed first edition to second edition because my dad was getting enough royalties. He got $2 million in his best year in royalties. Okay, and at this point, he was going to be able to buy, you know, and when the company needed money, he was going to be able to buy control of his company back. Okay, so they were always they were always looking for some way to find that other magic thing that would surpass Dungeons and Dragons and bring this company into Hasbro status or something. Um, So they started buying other people's products. and, and pushing them out. And some of the games were, were fairly good. But, I mean, Balderdash didn't come cheap. Mm. Suspicion. Um, and luckily, we made a few smart things, like Top Secret, which is now with the new TSR. Yep. You do know that TSR is a new company. Yes. We're, hoping, okay. to have, oh, we're yes. hoping to have Jason on at some point. We've reached out to him. We had Al Hammock on, and he was talking to us and said we should have Jason on. So we'd love to have him on. He, yeah. That, to me, is awesome. Yes, Jason. Jason was the original editor for my uh, children's book, Sammy Zawa versus the Dueling Dragons. Oh, really? I don't know if you've ever heard that I did a children's no, book. No, that's but, awesome. But with my first marriage, um, 
rather than I was raised without Christmas and things like this, but that doesn't always go over well with relationships. Yeah. So then instead of buying real presents, I made a story for the little boys, the grandsons. And uh, that they were through the marriage, yeah. you know, but they did uh, to them. I was the only grandfather. Their, their grandfather was dead. So in a nutshell, I made this incredible story, which mixed our real life into a fantastic Japanese fantasy world. Huh. So with, with their dad, with grandpa, with grandmama-san, and all this. Sammy Zawa versus the Dueling Dragons. A, a fun little book. Jason helped work with it, edited it, and even found the printer for me. And then his wife, who's Japanese, said, this is not really right to Japan, blah, blah, blah. And he says, I'd like to back off. And I just took it over and the thing. <laughs> well, we'll put it. I'm very We'll put a we'll put a link up to that. Is, is that? Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's not it's not available oh. now except when you see me at conventions or whatever. Okay. I did have a website for it, and uh, it cost me a thousand dollars a year to run this site, and I was getting four hundred dollars in yeah, sales. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Ernie, speaking of conventions, could you tell us about what has since become now? We've talked about Gen Con Zero. Can you tell us a little bit about Gary Con, what's now known as Gary Con Zero? Well, that, of course, was the actual funeral. And at the funeral, we had all these gamers from all over the place, mostly, well, at least half old TSR employees that had come to really love and respect my dad's work. And so we, seeing that these people were coming, uh, we rented the American Legion Hall, which it had been a spot where a few Gen Cons and lots and lots of the mini conventions. We'd hold three mini conventions a year here in Lake Geneva, as well as the one Gen Con in the old, old days. Okay. And um, so that was a gathering for everybody to, to come and, and to remember my father the way he wanted to be, be remembered as someone who liked to play games and to do so by playing games, not, not talking games, not making money from games, you know, not, not choosing that in the old days there was the miniature enthusiasts thought that the board gamers were weirdos and blah, you know, back and forth. Right. And when fantasy started, Oh my God, this is garbage. Yeah. <laughs> and so all these little secular groups that couldn't associate, everybody come in and play games. All games are good. Enjoy. And that was the spirit where Gary Khan was started. And can you talk a little bit about Gary Khan? Because so most of our listeners and viewers are probably going to be familiar with Gary Khan, but if they're not, they really should be. And I, and I know that your brother Luke, uh, you know, basically runs the show. He's done an incredible job. I've been three times. It's phenomenal. Can you talk a little bit about what Gary Khan is and what it's become? Well, it was originally started with with my brother and Elisa to be a, a spot to honor my dad. And as far as Elisa was concerned, it would just be stay as a gathering and the games were a side item. Again, she was never a real gamer. She's now trying a little bit of D&D. And even then, though, it's just she likes the social aspect and the getting together at night over pizza or, and wine. And But what what's happened with Gary Khan is, is that we wish to, and I'm part of it too, though, I don't have to do Jack Be Nimble for work. That's, a, that's by choice. I also own less of it. <laughs> um, the idea is, is that we're going to keep this in Lake Geneva, God bless, and let's hope, because we've, we've grown to the point 
that now the old Playboy Club, which is the Grand Geneva, is we we're using every bit of it, and we're using all sorts of other hotels outside just to hold attendees. So at this point, it is the most it is the most friendly spot where you can go and talk to people, and you're going to find an incredibly higher percentage of creative people that are, that are that have produced and are not necessarily hucking and pushing their materials. These, this is a spot where you get together, reminisce, talk about new ideas, things that didn't get done. And it's not like you go to a Star Trek convention, you pay 50 bucks to get William Shatner's autograph. Everybody is happy to sign things, to talk about things, to possibly run you through games. It's a spot where you get to play. I do what I do best is running huge games. I'd run at least 13 people, generally up to 22 people at a time in, in games and keep the action moving. And I even have it where you don't just get a single slot. It's, it has to be a slot and a half. So if you're playing my game, you're going to miss out on as many games as you could play. There's just no way we're going to fit this all in to a three-hour time slot. Um, uh, Gary Kahn is, again, the people that we have working for us Skip Williams and Dave Conant both used to work for me when I was the uh, vi uh, executive vice president in charge of consumer services. I had the hobby shop, the mail order, Gen Con, and I also had the role playing game association all under me, like 20 full time and two part time employees. Okay, these people that are skilled gamers, damn near as old as I am, are Luke's primary workers. They're the guys that are getting things done. And then there's a there's a young lady as well that's <laughs> that's doing incredible work, and she's second generation gamer. And what's cool is that she is uh, the daughter of <laughs> of a gamer friend of my dad's and things like this. Um, the whole I, I just can't stress the idea that it's it's a continual gathering like family. You can leave a dice bag and have a 90% chance it's still going to be there, <laughs> you know, on a table and go away for four hours. Because everyone's a first-level thief. <laughs> they don't have a good chance to pickpocket. That's why. That's, well, that's, they all that's failed right. their attempt. That's the problem. Didn't your, didn't your dad, wasn't he kind of stingy on the percentages <laughs> for first-level thieves? I mean, come on. Uh, I, I Again, the idea is that all character classes are to be to be kept fun, and there has to be a, an element of danger involved. And yeah, when it comes to thieves, Dad's first character was a fighter. It was Yureg. It wasn't Mordenkainen. Mm. Yureg the fighter, which is, of course Gary backwards, um, and then Felnareth the fighter. Then he got Mordenkainen. He got Bigby, and like I said, Sigby Grigby and the cleric was his was his group. So everybody thinks that Mordenkainen was his first character. It might have been his third or fourth adventure when he added a magic user to his mix in Rob's game. Um, I, I, you guys, you really want to talk about Thieve. You have something about gnomes or something here, I think. <laughs> well, we have a disagreement. I like gnomes. James thinks they should have stayed like they were, what, in basic, which is what, as a monster right. or they a creature be a or something? They're, not, they're, they're derivative. They're, I'm not a fan. 
they're, they're big nosed dwarves. But, uh, um, that, thank you. <laughs> no, I refer you to Roger Moore's article, The Gnome Point of View, from Dragon Magazine, where he explains that that is not correct. Uh, Roger Moore was not Gary. Roger was a, another DM's concepts of the game. The dragon was not official unless it was my dad's materials. It's all a bunch of maybe if you want to make it so. Do we do we have to follow the polyhedron's um, official rulings? Uh, no, and Frank worked for me, um, <laughs> and so did Kim Eastland. And it's sad that Kim's gone because Kim is all was to help with this giant lands project that I've also been just slightly working on the side. That was a Kim Eastland creation with uh, Stephen Dinehart. I'm going to keep on talking about all these things. There's so many things now starting to gel. Yeah. The interest by, by so many people getting back into Dungeons and Dragons, all these people are, that have done this as young people are coming back out and trying to say, well, how can we make this as a living? And it's tough because <laughs> the best and so, way... Yeah, yeah, maybe you could talk about that, right? Because so, so James and I, we went through what I think what our friends at the Grognar Files calls the deep freeze, where we didn't play for decades, and now we're playing again. And this, of course, has become known as OSR. Somebody corrected me, said, look, you shouldn't call it the old school revival because it wasn't dead. They prefer old school renaissance. That makes sense to me. How has that changed you know, what you do now, seeing this people like James and myself 30 years later are getting back into old school gaming. Is it, has it been, has it been strange? No, I just think your hormone levels have dropped a little bit. Now you haven't had time to think again. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. uh, all right. So listen, if we're, if we're going to do kind of a lightning round, I've got questions like a neutral cleric. You know, James has heard these a billion times. He's going to roll his eyes here. Neutral clerics, should they be, can they turn? Or do they befriend? No, you, definitely you know? not, not, not befriend. And I would say um, that I would allow them to turn, but I would not allow them to be eighth or ninth level. At a certain point, you're maxed out. And you're going to have to decide whether you go good or evil. Ah, okay. Um, okay. You need to you need to have a power base, and it's not just you know um you know karma and kumbaya and all this crap. It's you got to have there's good and there's evil. Gotcha, uh, James. Any questions? Well, uh, whatever happened, uh, Steve asked. Whatever happened to Gygax magazine? Do you think it'll come back? Uh, I don't think it'll come back, and. I'm not sure, but there is some discussion going on. Um, we've there's we've opened up uh, something about the will, and anyway, it was stopped because uh, Jason couldn't afford to fight Gail Gygax in court because she seems to think that anything to do with the name Gygax is owned by Gail Gygax, and um, and she does have control over my dad's printed and other works at this point. But even that is, has been found to be only as long as she's alive. So that's, of course, is all up to a judge. And that's a whole nother thing. But I do not think those as wonderful as Gygax magazine was, I don't know if a printed product like that can work in our modern society. Sadly, because yeah. I, I think it's just as good as the early dragons and far better than later dragons. Without a doubt. Um, 
so you you know I, I again growing up Gygax, you know right that kind of thought is um, when did you know what you were doing was special? Uh, what time did you find when it dawned on you that this was not just hey we're making a game that like you said all these creative types you know you, the the movies the other things that you your dad your father and you wanted to do they've come to fruition everything is infused the geeks have won. Um, at what point did you realize, wow, we're doing something that's going to be, you know, around for generations now? It was awfully scary when dad got kicked out of TSR and I saw TSR going down the tubes. Then it was like, you know, shit, this is, this is going to be something that's just a fringe thing again, just like war gamers were with, uh, HG Wells and all these other peoples that were just, um, and the Renaissance, I think there has to be some, as much as I'm not always a, a fan of third edition and fourth edition, somehow Watsy really helped keep this alive, you know, by, by keeping it in front of people and allowing and of course, every new generation wants to think that they're doing something absolutely different than their own folks, because there's something evil about being just like your <laughs> progenitor. Right. Um, I'm, I'm still at this point. It's obvious that it's it's wonderful. The movie certainly didn't do, you know, that was scary too. God, those first Dungeons and Dragons movies. Uh, do you know that Dragon Slayer, when Disney did it, almost ruined it for fantasy movies completely? Even though I really like Dragon Slayer, it was a big loser at the box office, and and Disney almost went into receivership kind of thing at that point. <laughs> and it made it really hard for us to get the D and D movie done when I was out there in Beverly Hills. So I'm I'm sorry if I'm losing the track a little bit here. No, it's okay. The mind. There's well, so many things. <laughs> and what I wanted to note is that we've done a lot of interviews recently with people who knew your dad. And the way they talk about him, it, it's very consistent. They revere him. Um, they, they talk about how he changed the world, in their opinion, and, and the impact he had. Um, they, really, they, they really seem to hold him in such high esteem. They're very almost very protective in many respects of, 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 of his reputation. And it's been very, it really has struck me what an impact of such a positive impact your dad seemed to make on so many people that he, he gained with and worked with. Well, I, I think that he was a creative genius who had the ability and the desire to sit and work until the wee hours of the morning where he'd fall asleep on his typewriter. Okay, I have the creative ability. He, he passed that on perfectly to me without the desire and the uh, backbone to sit and type constantly and work. I'd love to just come up with ideas and then go over the ideas and have somebody else do a lot of the work. The Lost City Gats, Lost City Gaxmore, I did pretty much all on my own. And then Luke got to fill in most of the the uh, graveyard. And I worked on it with a prisoner in the Florida State. He was somebody who was in hard time. 
It was 23 hours in lockup and isolation cell, come out in a cage for an hour. And this is a guy that I, that, well, that's why the idea of Gaxmore came about. He wanted me to run a solo dungeon with him. And I, it's after doing a few play-by-mail letters like my dad used to do with people, I said, this is, this is stupid. I've got a ton of kids here I should be running games with and doing things. Why don't we take some of your free time here and let's, let's come up with some ideas together and you can sit and start drawing maps and, and generating material and here we'll work on some stuff together. So um, after doing that, though, I made enough money with the original Gaxmore that I could have been at McDonald's flipping burgers for the same amount of money I made at that time. And I thought that was it. So I said, this was a lot of work for a small return. <laughs> so in, this, in the future, I'm going to figure out a way to have other people that really want to do this, like my poor friend Ben, ben Walpoir. <laughs> yeah, wait, well, can I say, wait, was he, were you, can you explain how that happened, your collaboration with that guy in prison? Number one, a lot of your discussions of Florida seem to involve crime, but that's a different issue. Crime in prison. How well, that's, did, that's all of Florida. Crime in prison. Yeah, that's all of Florida. <laughs> how did, James is actually broadcasting from prison. <laughs> right. How did, how did, how did, wait. I'm confused. So wait, this you collaborated on in the Lost City of Gaxmore with somebody in prison. Did had they written to you? What? How did that yes. start? He was he was buying products from the game guild, and there was a side game guild store in Missouri that went out of business. And then we got these letters saying, "Hey, this guy didn't ship me this stuff." Someone had there was a anyway. Yes, he was taking what little bit of money he could get, and trying to buy gaming products. And he was in a spot where they wouldn't even let him have cardboard in his books. Wow. So when I started dealing with him, I'd have to cut the cardboard out of his books. And then I would re-glue the, uh, the labels back together and give him all kinds of uh, tape. So then at some point I was kind of sneaking in Elmer's glue and lots and lots of scotch tape so that he could then get all he could get was eight and a half by 11 pieces of graph paper and then he could glue them together to make a giant map for me so how did we do this it's just that he wanted me to do a solo dungeon for him because he said i'm he, he he was a car thief that had a two-year stint and then he did an escape got caught he tried another escape injured a guard and suddenly he was on a 20-year hard hard time stint Right. He probably used the stuff you sent him to help try well, and escape. He's a first-level car thief in first edition. That's his chance for escape is, <laughs> he, is horrible. He blew, yeah, he, he blew he his percentile roll. That's terrible, yeah. So, so I spent, sometimes it would take me like an hour to get some of these books made so they could actually be shipped to him because, you know, you have to remove these dangerous things like cardboard. He couldn't even have a pen. His pen had to be a soft jelly pen that would bend and twist. And he couldn't draw very well with that. So then he would take my scotch tape and stiffen the pen. So I guess it could have been made into a weapon, but I, he was drawing for me these things. And I sent him several hundred dollars, about maybe half as much as I was getting to uh, for commissary. So at least he'd have something to eat in his six by eight cell. I mean, they had him really, you know, you, you hurt, you hurt another human being. That's a guard. You're, you're in a bad situation. Yeah. So, so he's was, still there. I don't know. He's oh. been long lost to time. But, I, but I, you know, we, we talked a bit. But then at a certain point, uh, the, game guild, um, the game guild fell apart. 
Margaret Weiss and Don Perrin had a personal uh, differing of opinion, um, basically over young girls and things. And <laughs> the, the marriage ended. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, but the Lost City of Gaxmore was published, right? I think for Castles and Crusades. Before that, no. Uh, yes, it was Castle. It was it was published for three point five. Oh, okay. As as a Troll Lords product. Yes. Okay. When all those things were kicking out, when White Wolf was doing a bunch of things, and I even included, I think, a few monsters from White Wolf. Oh, did you? In the original, and I, I don't know if that's been wiped out or what by this point. And, and also, and just as another recent uh, product that we want to talk about is uh, uh, the Memorial Tomb, right? Oh, yes. Thank, thank God that Troll Lords stepped in because my, uh, my partner and an incredible game, not only designer, writer, and person is Benoit in, in British Columbia. But he was trying to paint the 16th chapel, but concerned because maybe the eye color from frame to frame wasn't the same or something. So he's going back and, and correcting earlier work and wasn't getting things out. So finally he had to, because he and I would just spend hours uh, thinking of things and, and, and he would be writing away and I'd be coming up with stuff and say, no, no, no. So we just spend, we spent years working and it will be someday the Hobby Shop Dungeon will be released. Oh. We'd spent already a couple of years working on this. And then all of a sudden Gygax Magazine said, I would like to have a centerfold like Dragon used to have. But we have a game product, a little mini adventure for Gygax number three. And Ben and I said, sure. So we made up the first level of the Memorial Tomb. And that's it's fantastic the way it was right there. And that's a great issue. And then, of course, it's like we started coming up with all these other ideas. And um, then we have a world setting. And see, that's the problem is that we then fell in love with the idea of crowdfunding and the idea of stretch goals. So we kind of outstretched ourselves way beyond the ability to fulfill on time. And it, 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 it's like three, four years late. Now, it's finally people have the beta version PDFs. And um, right now, it's being finished with the Troll Lords peoples and in contact with Ben and I. And uh, they're just opening up to a, a backer fill so that the new people at Trolls that didn't know about it before can get involved, as well as those who have seen what is there can upgrade their purchases. And what's funny with the backer fill, I just had to write the check. I still have the money in the account here in a separate account. It costs it cost like twenty two or twenty eight hundred dollars that I had to send to the backer fill people because it's a percentage of your overall take to then allow this to happen. So that's it's it's interesting. They're they're kind of bankers, the people that have Kickstarter. They've got this all figured out. A little bit here, a little bit there, and it makes this big heap of cash at the end. So yes, there's lots of hope. It's an incredible, fantastic product. It's old school in, in feel, and yet Part of the stretch goals is that people are going to be able to have it in different versions, like fifth edition, and all that. And um, 
I just can't wait till we finally get it in people's hands. But I'm, I myself don't want to keep GP Adventures as a Wisconsin company. I want to close it out as soon as this has been fulfilled. I want to take whatever money, if there is any left over, put it out. And then I want Ben and I to be nothing but creative people working together, collecting royalties. And I hope that most of the time it'll just be through, if not all the time, through Trollor. We, they don't advertise something before it's ready to go, or at least in some, because I've, I've burned a little bit of my own reputation, and certainly Ben's hurt his own reputation for fulfillment, and that sucks. You, you don't know what it's like to get negative feedback, and, the, and if you answer negative feedback, all you do is create more of it, or unless, unless you have the, the Band-Aid. Yeah. So I had to ignore people screaming at me saying uh, lots of curse words and things like this and saying, I have the money. Things are not going to you're on Kickstarter. It's not a contract, blah, blah, blah. But you are going to get it. We just haven't stolen it. I don't I didn't get a bunch of babes. I don't not driving a nice car. I'm not living anywhere nice. <laughs> I, I am not but, Ken Whitman. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, well. Congratulations. We're looking forward to it coming out, though. So it, it, it's exciting. And so, just um, what would anything you'd like us to know about your dad? So, you know, if if we were supposed to think one thing about your dad, what would you want us to know about your father? That that my father had an imagination that never quit. That the sky was the limit. And that our own our own bodies, he didn't believe that the game was reality. He believed that it was storytelling, and it's shared storytelling. That's why there has to be rules. Um, I just want to during the time when Nixon, uh, my dad was was a ward boss for Nixon back in the '60s when he ran. Okay. So he was a, a, a re, working for the Republicans at the time. And then uh, he saw that his people were cheating and that Kennedy's people were cheating. Then later on, when the next time came around for Nixon to be running, my dad had a little longer hair, and this was just pre-D&D. He got this giant Fu Manchu poster, stuck it in our wallet, I mean, in our window at 330 Center Street, and said, Fu Manchu for president. So dad was a little bit of a hippie, a little bit of an idealist. He listened to fire sign theater albums with his friends. Mm. He used to have to go down in the basement a little bit to smoke a little grass while my mom would be yelling, damn it, you're going to get the kids all upset. You know, they're going to become drug people, blah, 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 you know, this kind of thing. So he was a human being who had his own ways of life. And he was he was a nerdy guy that that other people in Lake Geneva knew him say, it's so amazing to think that he's something because he was somebody that was just skipping out of school. And we'd see him in a leather jacket reading down uh, uh, by the, the lake and by the library and playing chess with all these other weirdos. <laughs> and things like this. We never thought he'd be anything, you know? So what he did is he created a system for people that have imaginations that, that think and don't conform necessarily to what the modern society says is the thing to do. And he created a way for you all to get together, and you probably fit in that mold too. I certainly was a, 
I remember being in high school with shorts and a winter coat. You know, I mean, how much more silly walking around, you know, <laughs> with a violin. <laughs> That's awesome. You can't get much more dirty than that. Okay. And and now I'm uh, I'm discussing things with you on Skype. Yeah, he, he, he <laughs> indeed, your dad indeed made the world a much better place for, for so many of us. So he, he certainly did. So. Absolutely. Yes. Contribution. So, Ernie, um, uh, how can people find you online? I know you you, have fa- you do Facebook. Is there any other social media that you uh, use? No, it's 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 pretty much Facebook. Okay. And I all my stuff is public, and um, I I try to avoid all political discussions, and try to keep everything game based. And I just uh, I just shared uh, some of the wonderful maps on Facebook last night. That uh, Alyssa F- uh, Farden did, uh, or Faden did for me. Uh, she did it for the Lost City of Gaxmore for Troll Lords, but then she had it done. I think they're like five by seven uh, on canvas. Wow! And I, I took a bunch of shots, and right now it's it's at the framing company. I'm not going to have it framed yet, just to have it uh, boarded and stretched on something that so we could hang it is $300 right there. Yeah, it's a huge thing. Wow, yeah. Mm. And it's beautiful. So if what's what's great with my product so far is that I think I have the best computer-generated map maker in Alyssa on one of my products, and I have the best hand-drawn with some computer fill work by Benoit Parr. I think it's Pear, but I say Poir. Um, and he his his maps are just incredible. So if you go look at the hobby shop dungeon, and and there's again it's another it's another big Facebook thing. I know some people hate Facebook, but I'm old, and Facebook to me was new. I've been at it for over ten years, and it's fun. So I haven't gotten into Twitter. I don't have Facebook on my phone on purpose just because I would never have a real right, life. That's the, I agree. Same thing. I have none, none of the social, I, uh, the only social media I do is for the show because you know, it's the nature of the, unfortunately it's the nature of the beast. If you got a, uh, you got to grind and, and let people know you're out there, but, uh, no, no problem at all. So if they want to meet, they want to reach out to you, it's on Facebook. Then that's, that's great. And yeah, we're, we're very excited. And at conventions. And, at conventions, and like I said, uh, I don't know if this virus probably is going to stop us from doing November this year, but hopefully the week after Gary Con, we're going to try to work with Geek Nation Tours to do the uh, classic retreat, RPG retreat, again here. And now I'm trying to get it together with Terrace Cassidy to be the Tuesday after Gary Con closes on Sunday. Mm. Always Gary Con for me is like a two-week party anyway. Because people arrive early and we just game and hang out and go to dinners and things. And then we party up till maybe three days after Gary Khan. But if we can get people, again, it's, it costs money. The, the guys with the, the tourism don't do it for free. But um, we, we get it so that if we can create this thing where you can come to Gary Khan for the first week and then spend another five days or so gaming, it's basically like a gamer camp. This is almost like being a kid again, where you stay with other gamers and things as you eat dinner with all the people. They and, and then all day long, it's just nothing but playing games with Jim Ward, Ernie Gygax, Jeff Leeson, Tom Wom, 
uh, God, who knows what else? Uh, Harold Johnson might jump in. He he came and visited and things. There's all these wow. old TSR people. Yeah. It's like those baseball camps. Don't they have those baseball camps where you go and yeah. you play with? Yeah, fan, it's a fantasy. It's literally fantasy camp. It's not fantasy rock camp. It's fantasy. <laughs> that's camp. right. It's fantasy fantasy that's camp. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, that's that to me is is great, and 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 they, and they make my life a little easier too. They give me a little coin to somehow be able to to get through. I'm on disability. My knees are both shot oh. and things, and I've I've beaten cancer. Well, I hope I have. I'm about to get a blood test again pretty soon, but uh, the, the tumor's gone. I had classic Hodgkin's lymphoma. Oh, it took about seven months of uh, chemotherapy. Lost all my hair, and now my hair is coming back all uh, curly. So my long, straight hair, I used to be a, a long-haired ponytail guy. Now I'm probably going to end up keeping it shorter and getting it cut and things. But, I mean, life goes on. I've got an incredible fiancé. And we've got now a couple dogs, one cat left. I just had to put one down. Life is good. It's almost like I'm having a renaissance at, in my late 50s and early 60s. Well, that's that's so great to hear. You know, we, we appreciate not only your father's work, but your work. I mean, like I said, we're, we're holding up material that you've worked on and you've influenced. And I agree with you that, you know, my son plays fifth edition and there needs to be a fifth edition. There needs to be a ninth edition at some point we, it, or else the game's going to end. It can't just be... But for us, we like first edition because that's what we know and that's what we grew up with. And it's not just nostalgia. There's still a lot of value to it. And um, you guys doing that up there. You know, what sounds what sounds better than two weeks in Wisconsin in March? I mean, that sounds... Right. That just sounds amazing. <laughs> you know. It's good for nerds because we're not going outside very much right. except to go get food. Yeah. So, well, hopefully, like you said, the virus, at least they'll have some treatment or vaccine, at least starting to go because, you know, our very humble uh, conventions in October and, and, you know, we're obviously thinking that's going to be very difficult to pull off at this point. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a shame because this virus is so pervasive. It affects our game. Yes, you can play online, but it's not the same. It's not the same as getting around the table and doing that. It's not. And Lake Geneva is a tourist town. And I, I just doc showed some pictures and we made NBC News last week for Memorial Day showing how the town is just filled with young people, mostly, and others all face to face in crowds. And we're, we got to have a spike of some sort. I know it's 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 inevitable, but there was some hope that there would be uh, vaccines or something before it would reach everybody. Uh, and I, I myself feel a little stronger because I just had the best cancer you could have if you must have cancer. Yeah. I had I had a, a plus four in my saving throw. I was bitten by a centipede and the poisons, you know, yeah. only, a, you know, it's a, you get a plus four and you're safe. There's a lot of people that I know that have other forms of cancer that are gamers and things like this. And they have things where it's their pancreas right. or their bone cancer and things. And that's like drow venom stuff, you know? And oh, oh, you were talking about characters like gnomes should only be NPCs. Drow were meant to be NPCs. They're supposed to be slightly insane. They're not supposed to be player characters. Uh, They're not supposed to be good guys. I, I agree. Salvatore. Salvatore's made a fortune off it. Good for him. But he is certainly not a followed. <laughs> Don't get us. Well, we, we, well, you know, we, we don't want to start talking, you know, unearthed arcana. There's some, you know, we don't want to, you know, 
we don't want to go yeah, there. The, oh, you uh -huh. said the word. You actually. Oh. Yeah, we call that the book well, that shall not be named. For us. Well, I don't, his father wrote it. Yeah. You can't. You don't want to. The good thing about Unearthed Arcana is, is that it was ideas that hadn't been play tested through fully yet. Um, and it was what was necessary for my dad to try to take the company back. And that it was the only way that TSR would have survived without being liquidated by bankers. It was going to just be liquidated, sold off for its assets, and gone. Right. That's what Kevin Bloom had done to the company. And his brother had allowed it to happen because his focus hadn't stayed. Brian was a genius. But once he lost it, his, his attention was gone, it was gone. It was like, fuck this, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Take me to something else that's fun. Mm. And... A lot of us have attention span things, but but most of us can still go to work. <laughs> oh, can I, I want to ask you a real quick question because it came up on Facebook. Do you know who came up with the three die six for uh, attributes? Your dad or or Dave Arneson or or who? Do you know? Um, I would guess that Arneson. Okay. I would think Arneson. Okay. And, and you mentioned yeah. the man. The man was a gamer. Yeah. You know, he, he and he wasn't the only one, but he was an important, you know, it took my dad quite clearly said that he didn't come up with all these ideas on his own. He read and all these wonderful works of Clark Ashton Smith, H.P. Lovecraft, A. Merritt, Fritz Leiber, who I've gotten to meet several times when he was alive and he was a pen pals with my mother, um, uh, Robert E. Howard, uh, and even before that, there was somebody else that Howard liked that I've read some stories of a, of a Cossack that was what in, got Howard to start writing. Um, all these incredible things, Appendix N. Yep. I can't speak highly enough of looking in your first edition DMG and or online, look up Appendix N and start reading those books. And you will see what inspired Gary to take all these other people's concepts and pull them all together into one game. Indeed. Yep, appendix on page 224 for those listening on the podcast. There, there you go. No truer words have been said. Um, well, I, I think that's it from the chat. Uh, Dan, do you have anything else for, for Ernie at this point? No, Ernie, you've been very generous with your time. Yes. We appreciate it. Well, I can't wait till you send me a link to share with all the other people's on Facebook. We, we send old people. We will, old people's menu. <laughs> we, we will. We will send you. Uh, we'll. We'll send you that. Actually, I'll. I'll send it on Skype when it's done. This is because it's a live stream. We do a live stream and then we do a podcast. I, I edit it later as a podcast. But we'll. I'll send you the link uh, in Skype and I'll text it to you as well to your phone. So again, thank you so much for your time. We've. Uh, oh, uh, Vic says he's blasted on Facebook already, but I'll be happy to send that to you again. Uh, that's no problem all right. at all. Uh, so, so Dan, um, again, Ernie, thank you so much for your time. This has really been a pleasure. Our fans uh, wish you the best of health. We're so thankful that you've uh, either defeated cancer or knocked it back, and you don't have to worry about it for now. So that's great. Good luck on your, uh, on your test I'd be, today. I quit drinking, too. Drinking a little over four years ago. That was, that was something that almost had me, well, it did. I was, I was either going to have to start finding a new home for my dog or I was going to have to quit the bottle. And I had, I was up to a full bottle of bourbon every day. Wow. So mm -hmm. that was, yeah. So all things and, you know, all things in moderation, that's something that I, 
wished I had a better control of. Well, and I, and I think a lot of people <laughs> have that. And I think it's also, you know, you're, you're around to tell and some people weren't. And it's very fortunate that uh, you, you got to that point where you've, uh, a lot of people keep, they keep failing, but you figured out, hey, you know what? I still have a lot to say. So that's great. That's awesome. That's I'm um, so congratulations. That's a huge accomplishment. I'm always I'm always willing to help others. And the idea though is that you can't be closed-minded on it because the natural progression is is that you're going to fail several times before you can take that big step if you wish to. And it's only by the time you get down to the bottom that you can ever change your life in such a drastic fashion. Uh. I'm surprised the Chicago Bears didn't cause you to fall off the wagon, but that's a different <laughs> discussion. Actually, I have no idea. Are they good, bad? I don't know. I'm going to go back to YouTube right now, and we're going to watch some more of uh, Jim McMahon. And, oh, be- uh, beating, my, beating my Patriots. Oh, no, that's that's just one. My, that was just fucking an AFC team. Who cares about that crap? We're talking the, the black and blue division. That's the good games. And yes, and yes, Tampa Bay was in the black and blue, and I don't know why they ever left. Because that was that was how they learned how to be any type of team. You have to get a good drubbing before you could ever learn how to pick yourself up out of the dirt, rise up, and fight. Yeah, it was it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just it. We were cursed for a long time. We have orange uniforms with that uh, very yes. very Bruce the Gay Blade. It was. Uh, I I was at their first home victory in 1977 when they beat the Cardinals, St. Louis Cardinals. That was their first home victory. I was there. Not to that. Is impressive. Which, which, which Cardinals, though? Were they St. Louis? Or? Yeah, St. Louis Hart, I think, was their quarterback, Hart, 77. Yeah. They were pretty good in, in the mid-70s, I think. They, yeah. But. They were good enough. Well, you know, and, uh, you know, that's that's what's interesting. We I left New York. I was a Giants fan and came down here. And, of course, the right. next year they won in 87. The Mets won in 86. So I gave up on the New York teams at that point. And then I'm like, who, who is more pathetic than the Giants? Oh, the Buccaneers. And they were they, they did well for almost 20 years of being a joke, but, uh, we, we, uh, they finally won. And now we have Tom At Brady. I'm sorry. At least you're not a Jets oh, fan. Oh, Jets are horrible. Or... They're terrible. <laughs> they're, they're disgusting. But you know what? I've been a bear fan my whole life. And as I was raised a bear fan, the bears were four and 10. That was when it was 14 game seasons when I was just starting. And my dad said, but look at the enemies that the bears fight. They lose the game, but the next team always loses the next game because we bruised them up and broke so many bones and whatever. So we were taught on the old-fashioned, you know, to tear them apart, do the dick butt kiss, twist the leg, bite them, do whatever it takes. So now modern football is, of course, a different game, but yet I'm starting to see some reality where um, it's um, the, the old Miami player, uh, Nick Bonacani, I just saw something on HBO, mm. and he's really messed up. And just the same as um, as the greatest boxer probably ever, Muhammad Ali, and things. Yeah. There is brain damage that's caused, and maybe these rules, these changes, while they've made the game less fun in some ways, they really are protecting human beings, and maybe we can go with these changes. But it was hard at first to see all these pansy ass rules oh pass the reception <laughs> i mean i'm passing pass interference pass interference you know oh you touched them shame on you well with trebinsky <laughs> that's probably helpful they they need that so you know <laughs> hopefully he'll turn it around this year for you but uh hey well, 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 we well, well, a lot of losing years yeah well yeah that's something we both have a lot in common and it'd be nice to have a, a resurgence but uh 
we hope, you know, maybe hopefully early next year, Gary Khan, these things will come back and we can be up there and meet you in person. And, and, and if we can do the tour, if I can convince my wife that two weeks in Wisconsin is, is, uh, is a great vacation thing, I'll be, I will definitely try to get up there because that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, you see, the reason that I still play first edition is I'm not a Fairweather fan. When right. I moved to when I moved to California, I still watched the Bears if at all possible. I watched the Bears in Tampa, Florida, when I lived there for a while. I didn't switch my teams as I moved. I still watched other people's, but I still stayed true to the black and blue, the orange and navy blue. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they're you know, and they're legendary. I mean, that's the, without them, without them, and and the Packers and some of those teams. Oh, you know, the hated they, they, Packers. Yes, yes, the hated Packers. Yeah, well, that's something we both agree upon, so that's good too. So that that's the the enemy. My enemy is a friend of mine, so that's good. <laughs> At least for a day until until we're through vanquishing the foe and then could turn on each other. That's right, exactly. <laughs> well, the Packers, we both agree, they all deserve it. But uh, Dad, like I said, thank you. Uh, we're going to take a, a quick uh, break. We'll let Ernie off because he's been so gracious with his time, and we'll finish up the show. So, Ernie, thank you so much. Have a great day, and we will uh, we'll talk to you later. This is big, a bushy, puppy production. All rights reserved.